to the Hey You Podcast, brought to you by Hayton Education. I'm Matthew Hayton, and today I'm talking with Betsy Brown Braun, a child development and behavior specialist, parent educator, and author of You're Not the Boss of Me, Rat Proofing Your 4-12 to Year Old Child. Betsy's here to help us empower our children of any age to become the best versions of themselves with plenty of no-nonsense tips and hands-on solutions. Yeah, so it, I have to tell you though, Betsy, it was so fun to reread your second book, as a parent, um, who's, who now has, by the way, horrifyingly, an 11-year-old and soon-to-be 14-year-old. And I have to tell you that the brat proof thing still is there uh, for me, still a need to, you know, have a touchstone on and revisit. It doesn't ever go away. It just morphs and takes on different appearances. Um, my kids, man, my kids are 43 years old. And, I mean... I've had the impact that I think I'll have, but I'm still parenting in different ways. And I still think about what I say and think about what I'm modeling and think about what I do all the time. I'm sure. Yeah. That intentionality that you invoke in in the book and in your practice, it, it really hit home for me and it made me press pause on, on myself and really sort of take inventory. Yeah. How am I doing? How could I do better? How can I think about coaching other parents in our own practice or just fellow colleagues, fellow parents, right? And and I think the empathy you struck really hit home for me. I want to start with that. There was something you wrote in particular that I found really almost like a a sucker punch that was so critical. And it wasn't obvious until you wrote it. And that was that a Brad is a child who doesn't feel significant. You know, and that some parents might mistakenly conclude that a brat assumes he or she's at the center of everyone's universe, not just maybe even the family. And so can you tell us more about what you meant by that and, and well, how to come in with empathy on that? Well, I'm sitting here nodding as you're speaking. I realize in a podcast, you don't get to hear that. But um, yes, I think that so much of raising children has to do, well, raising adults because they're already children, of course. So much of it has to do with their relationship with us and what propels a kid to do what he does. And I always encourage parents to look at a behavior and ask about it. What's underneath the behavior? What's going on? Most especially with bratty behavior. And what it comes down to is that children really want to be important to you. They want your attention. They know that they have your love, but they still need to feel important, better word, significant to you. And when they feel significant, they don't have to act in ways that might draw your attention. Because attention is attention, whether it's negative or positive. And sometimes bratty behavior, negative attention serves the same purpose. It gets your attention. Um, so I don't know if that, if that speaks to what you were speaking about, because in terms of empathy, which is where you started your comment, it's, that's a hard one. Everybody is born with the capacity for empathy and it's directly tied into everything I talk about in my book. And it's 
directly tied into a parent's ability to be the parent he or she wants to be because you have to empathize with where your kid is. Where's he coming from? What's he feeling? Oh, he wants my attention. Oh, gosh, I haven't been home very much. Oh, I've been on the phone. Oh, I've been ignored. Oh, whatever. And of course, that that is that empathy is manifesting and paying attention and knowing and feeling. So, but that empathy piece, <laughs> it, it kind of sneaks into everything. Yeah, it's a work in progress for all of us, I know. And, and having that sort of extra reserve of patience. I, I was thinking sometimes when our kids are maybe at their worst behaved is when they need us to tap into whatever reserves we have that much more, right? To be at our best when they're at their worst. So easy to say, so hard to practice. You should write that and put it on a little card and frame it and put it up in your bathroom. I have a little card in my bathroom in my office that my clients use that says, kiss me when I'm I think it's naughty or bad or some word like that. Kiss me when I'm naughty. That's when I need it the most. And I think that's what you're saying. It is the same. It is the same thing. And you're right. When our kids are at their worst is when we need to be at our best. And that, but that worstness really, it, it brings out the worst in us for several reasons, not the least of which is that we have these mirror neurons in our brain that cause us to mimic and match the emotional level of the person with whom we're communicating. And, you know, your kid is screaming and crying and that just makes, you know, that's not being the best parent you can be. So there's that part of it. And then there's the part where you're, where you yourself are spent and exhausted and have had a terrible day and you don't want to stop and think about it. You just want them to shut the F up or whatever. And then there's the part about it that is, you just can't help yourself. You explode for all of those reasons. And the kid is being icky and I don't want you to be icky. That won't get us anywhere. None of the, any, neither, none of those first three will elicit from our kids the behavior that we want. But we know, back to what you said, when kids feel that they are significant to us, it activates in them a desire to be a good kid. They want you to be happy. I, I think, too, that when you talk about kids needing to feel significant, to feel seen and heard, I wonder if you're finding in the pandemic that that's more in hyper-focus than ever now that we're so flung together in these tighter nests um, with, with a lack of control that so many of us feel, particularly our children, I would think. Are you finding that any of these dynamics are that much more hyped up? And that some of the brattiness situationally could be a little more on display for these other reasons that might be pandemic related? Or do you think it's actually not changing anything in, in terms of this, this through well, line? I'd have to be dead to think it's not changing anything because change happens and change in itself is difficult. I think that there were, there were many, many things that, uh, reasons for our kids' behavior to change. And there were many changes that took place during the pandemic. But it isn't that every kid has anxiety and every kid is doing, it just isn't that way. It manifests differently in different kids. What I what I see happening the most commonly, happened the most commonly, is that kids were not accustomed to having their parents around so much. So a lot of the independence, the self-reliance was taken away. 
inadvertently, of course, but you know, the, even kids who are on Zoom all day, poor bunnies, horrible. But those kids, parents hired keepers. There were people who came in to make sure the kids were doing their work on, on Zoom. I mean, kids don't have people during the regular school year making sure they're doing their work. So a lot of this stuff was heightened. And what I saw happening is that I think their um, independence and their self-reliance was lessened. I think kids grew dependent on parents being there to catch them when they were goofing up. I think kids took permissions that they didn't even have the opportunity to take in non-pandemic times, like the open kitchen and kids getting up and going into the kitchen after every 10 minutes, or you know, I'm not talking about the pandemic 10 pounds, but I'm talking about kids who really didn't focus very well, who were distracted. Oh, don't even get me into all of the thing, bad things that happen with kids on Zoom all day long. It's that we're all tired of that anyway. But what I, I do think it changed, though the changes that happened had to do with, with um, kids trying out behaviors that weren't okay, parents over-parenting, too much involvement on the parents' part, stuff that we hadn't seen before and stuff and all things that I believe we can, you know, that we can cure. I don't think we were the cause. I think the pandemic was the cause and the parents took up the, took up the plight and, you know, followed up with just being there too much over parenting for sure. Speaking of the tech though, since you brought that up, Etsy, do you have any thoughts about whether or not in, in the situational pandemic, it's not even a situation, but I'm just calling it that the idea that it's hopefully finite, right? Um, are there rules that are different for families around tech use and screen time, not tied to Zoom schooling, but just in general, have you had to think about letting families change their tune or, or in fact, to double down and make sure that they're getting time unplugged? I'm, I'm sure this is coming up all the time for you. The only thing that comes up all the time is time spent. Time spent online, no matter what you're doing, no matter what it is. And I definitely rethought how much time, because when you're going to school four or five hours a day, well, you know, that's your, that's your allotment for the month or whatever, right? So we've had to um, rethink that in terms of, as we said before, there's free range and then there's school. So um, yes, I have rethought it. And I never would have let, I never would have put a kindergartner on a screen to say nothing of a nursery school. I, I never would put a nursery schooler on nursery school and preschool, same thing. Um, I wouldn't have put that child in nursery school on a screen, seldom with a kindergartner, except maybe a little bit here and there, you know, and we had to totally change that because of the pandemic. Yeah, when it comes to the free range time, do you see any differentials between, say, content creation or someone who might be into, I don't know, Photoshop or coding, what have you, versus someone who's maybe just scrolling through a feed on some channel like Instagram? Do you see those as different or do you see time as time? And I did, well, during the pandemic, I did see it as different. But by the way, the great majority were not coding and learning how to do things. The great majority were socializing. They wanted desperately as well they should 
to connect with friends. And that was the only way to do it for many kids whose parents didn't arrange these quasi-safe pods, which to my mind weren't safe, but whatever. Um, so that was their socialization, and that was the excuse that parents gave. So their bedtimes changed. They, you know, that was something that changed. They let them use it later rather than saying, you know, all devices go back to the, you know, to the uh, charging station at 8.30. It was like, well, 9.30 or 10. And everything shifted around then because when parents, at, at my pointing it out to them, would see a need, you know, they had to socialize. They had to, how do you become people without people to bounce off of? So, yes, I had to eat my words with that um, and, and, by, and change my beliefs. But, I mean, that's what we have to do. There's no one rule for anything. You have to adapt and make sure that it's applicable to this child at this time in this milieu and in this environment and this context. There's something else. It's so funny when I reread the book, you know, obviously when it came out pre-pandemic long ago and then now, and what a different lens I look through. And, and one particular topic that really struck me that I wanted to bring up was what you, I think, referred to as parent outsourcing. And this is something you brought up with an example, in this case, the bike coach, which sort of incensed me, not, not your example, but the fact that there is a bike coach, because it incensed me for the kids and the parents that such a position would need to exist. I've seen some bike coaches. They're really good. I can understand sometimes it's a volatile dynamic between a parent and child. And maybe there are certain families for whom that's a great fit, but that's sort of seminal. We're going to do this together. You're going to have to bleed. There are band-aids. And you're going to hate me. Yeah, you're going to probably hate me. And I might even hate you a little, but we're going to get there and there'll be a sunset moment somehow. I wanted to hear more about that because it seems like the bike coach is obviously emblematic of so many other types of coaches and stand-ins. Right. I can Some name them from skateboarding coach, you know, every kind of sport coach that exists. And then there's a person you hire to um, select and bring in your Christmas tree. I mean, that was oh. like, that's like rock bottom for me. Because I think, Wait, why would you want to go pick that? <laughs> what kind of memory would that be? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, but it is a sign of the times. You, I mean, you talk about affluenza, you have lots of great tips for how to break that cycle. But why do you think so many parents fall into this pit of, of outsourcing? Just the, the relative ease, the busyness, the cash? Yeah, because they can. Because they, listen, for some reason, for some reason, I don't know why, there's less time now than there ever was before. There, there, there are only 23 hours in a day and there are six days in a week. I don't know. But everybody says, I just don't have time. I just don't have time. And as a result of that, parents knock off the thing that they least want to spend their time doing or don't want to do for some other reason without even realizing how important it is, maybe. And picking out your Christmas tree, I think it's pretty important. Not, by the way, being Jewish, I'm saying this, not that I pick out Christmas trees, but as a family ritual and a family event, something you do. But I don't know, teaching a, teaching a child how to ride a bike or tie a shoe it's kind of like a rite of passage being a parent or being a child and letting your child see how hard it is for you and that he makes you crazy and you make him crazy. All that's good stuff. Right. You talk about how else do you send the message that your kids matter and that they're significant than putting in the time. 
on maybe the less exciting moments. Although to me, the memories of seeing my kids ride and my letting go of the back of that seat, clutched to my gnarled fingers and gasping to keep up, I, I, I treasure those memories. I, I choose to think they do too. Um, so I, it's a two-way street too, right? I mean, I got the gratification also of seeing them. Right. Well, I don't, man, I don't think they're going to remember the same memory that you're remembering. I am. And not only do we do it with our kids, but now with the grandkid, I've done it with a couple of my grandkids. I was fortunate to be privileged to be involved in that. But they're not going to appreciate this memory until they're way older, maybe even when they're parents. Or just the feeling that you were there for them, even if they can't name how and when. Yeah. That you were there. Might be enough. I'll take that. But, you know, a lot of parents are upset that their kids aren't don't show gratitude or don't appreciate all they do or the time they put in. And that's a whole other area we could go in, odd, you know, odd, odd nauseam forever. Yes, you have a great chapter about gratitude and how to engender exactly. it, but how to recognize it as a parent. Yeah. The, so our kids grateful. Easy to say, right? We, Even if it's not we expect our kids to show gratitude. We expect them to appreciate. And honestly, that isn't something that we, I mean, it's, yes, of course we want to expect it because that's how we teach it. That's how it's part of growing up. And that's how it, we inculcate them with um, showing gratitude and feeling gratitude and naming gratitude. But to be angry at your kids when they don't show gratitude, that's a really tough one because very very many times it doesn't happen until way later that they truly appreciate something, what their parent did. I honestly, today, I'm 73 years old. This morning, I was walking, as I do most mornings, or exercising, and I was listening to my favorite podcast, which is an NPR podcast called How I Built This, which I'm sure you've heard of. And they were replaying an old podcast for the woman who invented Stacy's chips. And she was talking about what she remembered from her parents, what her parents expected of her, whatever, whatever. And I was just thinking for the first time how my father said to me, why do you want to be an artist? Why do you want to do child development? Why? You need to take a business class. You need to have some business sense in this world. And I, he pissed me off that he said that, but he was 100% right. He was right. It took me 73 years to realize that. <laughs> and that podcast. <laughs> really? It's kind of crazy. Just today. But even if a kid says, oh, mom, I'm, thank you so much for what you've done. Sometimes if it's just words, it's not so clear that developmentally they're there anymore than it is just the words you want to hear, right? But your point? That is where it starts. Well, yes. attitude and empathy are, are kissing cousins. They're, what, you can't have one without the other. They you can't really be could be grateful until you appreciate someone else, something else. There are a lot of great ways, though, to reframe it. For example, giving to other people, recognizing other people's needs, rather than just exacting a thank you from your own offspring. Well, but my point is, until you can walk in someone else's shoes, it's hard to feel grateful because you have to understand how that person feels. Oh, grandma, thank you for the purple underpants. It's just what I wanted for my birthday. I wanted skates, right? And mommy says, well, you know, your grandma went to eight different stores so she could find the purple underpants she wanted and she was exhausted and her back went out. And so we're appreciative of the effort. All right, so what's my point? My point here is gratitude is incredibly important. We, we 
sabotage its inculcation because we want to force it as opposed to allowing nurturing it and um, one of the ways that we do nurture it is by assuming by encouraging by making our kids write thank you notes say thank you all of that sort of stuff has to happen it's at the intersection of writing the thank you note and feeling the gratitude that we see you know when you're really grateful for something and you write a thank you note then you've got the winner that's the blue ribbon that's the moment yeah but at the same time some of these kids um at different stages right are they're sort of hardwired to be raging narcissists off and on well, not that we give up, but some are, and some are rather me, me, me at certain points in general. So we have to expect them to struggle with this. If it were so easy, why would we have to teach it, right? It would just be an well, We're born with the capacity. We're genetically predisposed, not genetically, developmentally predisposed. We, we have the capacity. Whether it becomes manifest is another question. And it, it becomes the issue. And by the way, children are supposed to be narcissists not the word i would use for this but they're very egocentric they're all me involved because they cry we feed them they cry we change their diapers they cry we pick them up it's all about me it's all about me for a long 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 time until around two years old happens and then we pick up that child from the center of the room and we put them along the side with everyone else yes i know you want to do that but we can't do it now because daddy has to da 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 I mean, it, we, we start helping children not to be so me-oriented um, and me-centered. It's very hard for parents to see their kids be unhappy. Very hard. Very tempting to you know, swoop in and fix that. And you talk about the fact that we don't have the age-old problem or solution of being an agrarian community where everyone had to work the fields and work together and there wasn't such a luxury right. uh, for absenteeism on one side or the other of that coin. And if you don't collect the eggs, there won't be eggs for breakfast. You don't milk the cow, because you won't be having milk on your cereal. Right, this is a little different. And related to this topic, I was really interested in something you mentioned about some of your parenting groups, and that was about talking with parents and kids about money. And because this is of course tied to gratitude as well. How can we expect them to be grateful if they have no sense for what things cost or how hard some people work to provide whatever it is? And I was so struck that you mentioned that a lot of moms and dads will talk about sex, birds and the bees, way more so or, or they than they would money, at least in their own lives, reflecting back, right? Yeah. In their childhoods. Why do you think that is? Why is it so verboten? It's, it's, it's so interesting. I wish I had the for sure answer. I don't know what the for sure answer is, but I can only tell you my observations as a parent seem to be along with an awareness of people being in need comes a, a discomfort of having so much. And so people don't want to appear overprivileged with somebody who may not be or with the world, you know, Full disclosure, I have a, um, a wedding ring, uh, an engagement ring that actually I got many years after I got engaged. After 20 years, I got a ring. I never wear it with my clients, ever. I don't, I don't dress up. I don't wear anything that would give any clue about my privilege or my lack of whatever it is. And my feeling about it is in my, in my work, I don't want that to cloud people's trust in me. But 
people feel that way, that they're like embarrassed, that they, parents will say they're embarrassed to tell their child, how much should you pay for this house? Well, if you live in West Los Angeles, yes, you paid $3 million for your house if you bought it in the last you know, six months or whatever. I don't even know what it is. I'm not saying it right because I've lived in the same house for 43 years. So, but they don't want their kids to know because they feel like somehow we'll seem like we're so overprivileged or it's not polite to talk about money, which is a carryover from forever, which we know it actually isn't, that there's a degree of braggadocia with it, which we know isn't okay. So it comes rot with other issues talking about money. But quite honestly, I believe we have to talk about money in a, not in a braggy way, but in a very realistic way. And I'm sure you read it in the book. One of the things that kids need to do is they, they need to see their parents paying bills. Now I realize everything is done online, not writing checks anymore, but I mean, a kid needs to see, yeah, I'm, I'm paying this $500 to, to the power company because you know, I pay for our water every time you, that costs money. Or the trash cans, wait, do you think that's free? No, no, we pay to have six trash cans or whatever it may be. I wish our kids would have a handle on how much it costs to live in the world in the style to which we are accustoming our kids i hear what you're saying i'm I, yeah we all want humility nobody wants to brag no one wants to make someone uncomfortable no one wants to make the kids feel like a walking investment or some sort of packaged product and yet if you silence the debate how are they to get any sort of financial literacy how are they not the ones that go off to college if they're lucky enough to go who rack up things like credit card debt or who don't understand what interest is, or we started. <laughs> I'm sure, right? Uh, this is not a class that's really taught at the local public and private schools anymore. It's just uh, how to balance a checkbook, or what a 529 is, or what interest is, whether it compounds for or against you. And plus, we give kids credit cards, debit cards, or you know, we load up their cards. They don't even see money. They don't even. And when their debit card is used up. Mommy gets a note. Daddy gets a note. They don't even, they don't, they have no responsibility. People don't do allowances and stick to them anymore. Parents say it's too much trouble. Ugh, I keep forgetting it to give it to them. It's kind of amazing. I really appreciate you brought that one up because that was going to be my next topic related was about allowance. Whether you, you, you present a model that some people would be comfortable with, others might not be. The idea of maybe um, sort of a basic wage just for being you for your basics maybe it's because you make your bed and you're in the family and you i don't know you shower every day whatever you do maybe there's some basics you do and then maybe there's some extras if we're lucky that you would be willing to do for some sort of gesture um, and you talk about prices that might be somewhat related to birth year or, or age um, but it's obviously family to family and you recognize many families would, won't touch the, the pole have you had to think about this as well in light of, I don't know, inflation, um, you know, what's going on with age, family means, sensitivities. How many people do you think are even doing allowances that you talk with? Well, you know, I have all these, I have 15 parenting groups that I run and you better believe that I hammer it into those, those heads all the time. Not because I want kids to learn how to manage money. 
I, I think it's important. They need to learn to manage money. I think kids, uh, kids in addition, need to learn what things cost. It's very easy for kids to spend your money. Not so easy for them to spend theirs, as you know. So um, many, many families have allowances that I work with. Just to be clear, I, there are lots of different ways of doing an allowance. I do not pay children for doing things that they should be doing. And I just, just saying, there are certain things I believe that every child does because you're part of this family. They're your responsibilities. Clear your place from the table. Uh, hang, up, hang, hang up your wet towel. Make yeah. your bed in some form, if that just means putting the pillow up and where the animals go. You know, if you're three years old, you can certainly, you don't have to pull up the duvet, but you can put the animals back and put the pillow back. Um, clean up your toys and put your dirty laundry in the uh, laundry basket. Everybody does that. And I think in addition to that, every child in the family should have a job that he or she is doing for the well for the, the smooth running of the household a family job you don't get paid for it's maybe you set the table maybe you clear the table maybe you dust buster under the table but then beyond that at an age when children understand that a dime is actually more valuable than a nickel we start doing allowance and we have to first of all kids have to want to have money number one. And number two, they have to be at that age where they like collecting things, rocks, shells, thimbles, baseball cards, money, right? And you, you, you simply go, you, you think about how much you want your child to have at the end of the month, and then you break it into weeks, and then you break it into jobs per day, and a child does it, he gets paid. He doesn't do it, he doesn't. And then when you go to the circus and your child wants to buy that ridiculous flashlight, that every kid on earth wants, right? That's so bright and colors all over. And you say, of course you can buy that. Sure, you can use your money. And it's $30. They don't want it so badly anymore. Well, I believe that allowance teaches a lot of things. And let me just add one more thing to that. I also believe in saving and I believe in sharing. And I don't believe when children give charity, whether you're giving Sadaka in temple or the offering in church or wherever you are and you're giving something, that should come from the child. And honestly, I don't care if it's 10 cents or $10, as long as it's not your money. Child has to learn that we share, we save, and we spend. There's something else I wanted to bring up that really struck me, and maybe it's just because it's close to home and I think of my own upbringing. This kind of falls under the, uh, the pitfall of perfectionism that some kids find themselves in and or the parents. And it's a comment that I think is well-intentioned but can really land poorly. And that was three words, do your best. Right? Yeah. As long as you do your best, I'll be happy with you. You'll be happy with you. Why is that such a danger? Even when you said it, I had a visceral reaction, a little bit of a heave. <laughs> right? I hear that in my practice too. So that's that's why I want to bring it up. Because I think I think Nobody does his best or her best all the time. It doesn't exist. I think better than saying, do your best, it's better to give it to the child or the kid and say, did you do that the way you wanted to? Were you happy with the amount of work you put in? 
do you think you could have done anything differently? I, I wasn't there. But yeah. Do your best assumes that a child's going to always do his best. I think being a perfectionist, I'm actually a recovering compulsive. I really did used to be very perfectionistic, and I'm happy to say I'm not. Only in my painting, because I paint, am I still a little hard on myself. But I'm, I have a messy desk sitting right here, so good for me. But uh, honestly, that it's a plague to be perfectionistic. No, it, it's a blessing to be able to let it go sometimes. And if you're always having to do your best, how can you live with you? It's very hard. Sometimes. I think it's even more dangerous, Betsy, if someone happens to be blessed with a lot of gifts, whether they're academic, athletic, whatever, because if their best happens to be really, really good, then aren't you saying be perfect all the time also? It's almost more of a burden if the person happens to have certain facilities and aptitudes. It's almost more of a curse. You know, I love the title of Wendy Mogul's second book, which is The Blessing of a B-. minus. Right. I remember that. Because it makes me crazy when I hear parents bragging about their kids getting straight A's. And I kid you not, my comment to parents when they say, well, my kid got straight A's, and I say, oh, that's too bad. Yeah, and what else did they miss? Yeah. Gosh, that's, that's really too bad. And I'll say things like, well, listen, my dentist doesn't have to be good at playing basketball. So why is a person who is a fabulous artist who gets graded in art, which should never be graded, also getting an A and everything else. I, it just says to me that you, you're not reaching levels that are enough for you. you every, no one should be getting straight A's. That means the work isn't challenging you or you're not interested or something like that. Maybe not that you're not interested, but. No, I hear you. And, and what else, except perhaps in the K-12 continuum, are you supposed to be good at everything, Betsy? When does that happen again, that you are supposed to be the master of all? Not certainly in college, if you specialize in a major, if you go, or if you go to grad school, or you start to develop a career. When are you supposed to just crush everything so beautifully? I, I, it just doesn't happen again. So it's a false reality that gets perpetuated by the grade chasing and the rarefied error. Yeah, child doesn't do well, can you, you know how hard that child is on him or herself. Well, I'm really excited to hear, lastly, what's going on with you that's new, because I, I, I want listeners to know that BetsyBrownBraun.com has a treasure trove of resources. There's so much stuff on there. Thanks. That's, that's, it's really excellent. And I know a lot of people can hear you in a lot of different places, but what's going on either on the writing front, the research? What do you want to tell us about that's, that's kind of new, if, if anything, that we should know about? Well, I'm always producing something. I'm not going to write another book. People don't realize how hard it is to write a book. It's all consuming. It's like growing a baby. It's, I will not be writing another book. I do have a column that I do for my little local newspaper, the Palisadian Post. I do have a regular blog. And I, what I'm trying to remain in my life currently, what's new is I try to remain culturally literate. I try to be tuned into whatever is going on. And I have such a big client base. And I don't say that bragging. I'm just saying I have so many clients. I want to be current for them. I keep post-its right here on the bottom of my computer. Check in with this one. Ask this about that. I mean, I, I follow up on my clients and it's as much as I can do. That being said, the truth is 
I've now been married 50 years. My husband is almost completely retired. Thank God for golf. I love that he plays golf because as I say, we got married for better and for worse, but not for lunch. <laughs> and so, but I, I like to spend time with him and we like to do things together. So I'm trying to find that balance. I don't want to ever become resentful because I love my work. So what's new is that I'm doing more of the same. I have right now, I currently have 15 parenting groups that I'm running and I have my clients day by day by day. And I speak at schools and I speak at businesses and um, I'm busy. Always busy. I really appreciate you taking the time and, and sharing your thoughts. And I hope a lot of people will avail themselves of your blog. I, I'm on the list. It's really easy to get on it if people just want to hop on your website. Um, and I appreciate all the work you do in the community, both locally and nationally. Oh, thanks, Matt. Listen, I it, it's mutual. It goes both ways. And it's you're you're one of my resources, one of the people to whom one one of the businesses to whom I refer. You know, um, kind of as a parting shot here. You know, as you kind of get into these years when you're in kind of the last quarter, right? You begin thinking about not is that all there is, but you know, have you done it? What What's your role? Who are you? And I feel like it's everyone's job to give back, to give something. There's no free ride. So it is my plan to continue to give back in some way so that my legacy is going to be helping someone else to have a journey that's easier for them. And, you know, that's what I say to everybody. Make sure you're doing something where you have a sense of worth that you're giving back and make sure you model that for your child. I love that. Well, I mean, there, you've touched so many lives and continue to. So oh, I look forward to staying in touch with you. And thanks again. To find out more about Betsy's vital work and her resources, please check out our website, BetsyBrownBraun.com. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Hey You Podcast.